All right, thank you, Todd and Bill, for leading us this morning. Well, I'm eager to share God's word with you. I know it's a little funny doing it this way, but you know, actually we did this for several months in a row, if you don't remember, it was last March through through the beginning of June that uh, that we were doing it from our basements and our bedrooms and whatnot. But it's still God's word and God's spirit is here to meet us. And so I'm eager to share God's word with you. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to John chapter one. We're continuing to work through the doctrines of our statement of faith. And uh, from today through Easter Sunday, we're going to be focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Providentially, that's the part of the statement of faith that we're in right now. So we're going to spend um, these next three, four weeks speaking about Jesus, which is where our emphasis needs to be. Um, if I could sum up, uh, because it's been two weeks, if I could just sum up uh, the last three messages of this series. I think Ecclesiastes 7.29 is a, is a good summary. Solomon said, This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. <laughs> we were created very good in God's image as male and female. We were designed to represent him and to walk according to his goodwill. However, we have sought out many schemes. We have gone our own way. We haven't fulfilled all that God designed us for. And so sin has entered into the world. And because of sin, a lot of things were broken, basically everything. Uh, it created separation between God and man. It created conflict between man and man. It even created a resistance between creation and man. So now it grows thorns and thistles and labor is hard. And so that's what happened. That's, that's how the world fell. So we talked about God, uh, man's sin and its effects. Um, but today, there, we're going to talk about the good news. We're going to begin talking about the good news. We're going to ask the question today, what, what sort of person is capable of undoing all that's broken with us and with the world? Who can deliver us from evil? That's the question we're dealing with. And that's a question that John the Apostle answers. He wrote his gospel. We're going to read the prologue, and in the prologue, he describes to us who this person is that was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent crusher. Who is this person who's going to deliver us from evil, as many as put their faith in him anyway? And so let's read about this deliverer in John 1, 1 through 18, and then I'll pray. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Well, Lord, give us a vision here this morning of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your spirit is with us to do that, to open up your scripture to us and to illuminate the person and work of Jesus. We want to see him today. Uh, we ask that we not be distracted by this medium of, of technology. You are with us in every place, in every room. And this is your word, which will not return empty. It will accomplish what you intended. And so with confidence this morning, we hear from you again from John's gospel. And we ask for ears to hear and hearts to receive and a will to do all that you require and that, that is good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's only one goal for this message this morning. It's that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John said at the end in John 20, verse 31. That's why he wrote this gospel. That's why he wrote this prologue. He wants us to believe in Jesus as God, God the Son, but also God become flesh. God in a person with the name Jesus, who is the Christ, he says. Christ meaning the deliverer, the one who does deliver us from evil. John wants us to know that Jesus is that person. He is that deliverer, and he wants us to believe in his name, that we may have life, not an abundant life, but also an eternal life. So some of you watching or listening today, I don't know everybody who's on this, this Zoom call here, but some of you may not be all that familiar with Jesus or, or you know something about him, enough at least to be on a, a Zoom call with a church. So thank you. If that's you, thank you for joining us this morning. And I just pray that you're going to hear something that will be compelling uh, from Jesus as to who he is and why we call him Savior. And I hope that that will lead to belief, um, a trusting belief in him as the one who forgives our sins. I hope it will lead to that. Uh, but I know that most of you, maybe all of you who are on this call today, you've already believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But that doesn't mean that we move away from Jesus onto other things. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, um, he says that it's that continual view of the glory of Jesus that changes us, that, that makes us come into more and more this restored image of God in us. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. So in other words, we are changed, not just by doing things, not just by doing religious things, not by being on a Zoom call. We are changed by beholding the glory of Jesus Christ, by, by being enthralled with who he is, by being captivated um, by his person and by his work. Once um, once that gets into our soul, we grow, we mature, we become like Him. We sin less. We worship God more with more authenticity. So, to this morning, the, the topic is the person of Jesus Christ, and we're going to just give Him our gaze. We're going to behold, and that has its own application, which is to transform us. Um, it, as we become enthralled with Jesus things happen in our souls and in our lives. And so that's my hope for all of us is that we will be that way, that we will believe and keep on believing and keep on beholding Jesus and all of his glory. So we're going to describe his glory today in three words, God, man, and mediator. The first two come from John 1 through 118. The, other, the last one comes from 1 Timothy 2, which sort of ties in the first two together. So let's look at the, the glory of Jesus, um, starting with the fact that he is God. Jesus is God. John, or John says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And then in verses 14 to 17, he makes it clear that he's talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh, and this person in the flesh has a name, Jesus Christ, or more specifically, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Deliverer from evil that Israel was waiting for that we need also. Now, John starts by calling him the word. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he, he uses a Greek word here, logos. And that was a word that was significant to the culture at the time. The logos was considered the rational principle by which everything exists and that animates all of creation. So the thinking there is that there's something out there. Let's call it the logos. Let's call it the word. And, and that's behind everything that we see. It's some kind of rational intelligence that rules all things and runs through everything. So maybe a modern day equivalent is the force in Star Wars. Use the force, Luke, because then you can lift your X-wing fighter out of the marsh um, because the force runs through everything. Um, well, that's what John is doing here. He's, top, he's tapping into a cultural word for this unseen thing that is out there, the logos. And he's saying, let me tell you what that really is. You talk about the force? Let me talk about the force to be reckoned with, if, if you will. Uh, let me tell you about the real logos, the, the capital W word. And this word, what he means by it is, this, this word is the mighty self-expression of God. Like in Psalm 33, 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord, this powerful word that creates things. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That God's word is this, this mighty force, this powerful thing um, that, that displays his own power and might, his almightiness. And Jeremiah 32, 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord. 
the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? So you have all these references in the Old Testament that John is, is thinking back to, where God's word is connected with his display of himself, uh, his glory, his might, his, his will. Uh, it, it's exercised in creation and so forth. That's who John says Jesus is. He is God's word. He is God's powerful expression of himself. In other words, Jesus is God expressed, God visible to us. Um, and this is emphasized in different ways. First John says, in the beginning was the word. He doesn't say, in the beginning the word came into being or that the word was created. He says the, that the word was, meaning he was already there when this universe came into being. Verse 3 makes it clear. All things were made through him. If he wasn't already there, then nothing could have been made because it was all made through him. He was already existing before anything existed. That means Jesus Christ is eternal. He has no beginning. He just always was, and he always will be. The angel said to Mary about Jesus that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. He always was. He always will be because he's eternal. He is the eternal God. John says also, the word was with God. Literally, he was face to face with God. That speaks about this close relationship that Jesus has, that the word has with God from the beginning, uh, a relationship of intimacy and equality. He's not someone less than God. Uh, he's not like a dog with its owner, that they're just in proximity to one another. No, he, he is face to face with, he is on equal level with and intimate with God. The one in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, this is the same God. But he is with God. And so now we're moving into Trinitarian uh, truths here. Uh, John says he was with God, but he also says he is, he was God. The word was God. Um, so that bumps into the Trinity. You have one God in three persons. Each person is distinct. We can say one is with the other, and yet there is only one God. The word is with God, and the word was God. That's, that's Trinitarian language there that we're seeing. And John, John is saying that Jesus is, is in that. This, the word is in that Trinity. The word is that God that we know of as the triune God. Uh, verse 18 is where we find out he's the Son. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He really is God the Son who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when we say that Jesus is God, when we say that Jesus is eternal, that he was there in the beginning, that can be confusing because we know that Jesus was born about 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern village named Bethlehem. And so his bodily existence has a beginning. He became man, but he wasn't always man. The way we explain it is that God the Son... Um, was in the beginning, but at a point in time, he added to himself a human body and a human nature without ceasing to be God. He joined a human nature to his divine nature. 
we call that the hypostatic union. That's the theological term. We won't go into that. But um, let me just say this. It is not wrong to say that Jesus is the eternal God because he is God embodied in a person. And so we can say that he has always existed, though not always bodily. Um, that's why Jude, the Lord's earthly half-brother, said this in Jude 1.5. He said, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Jesus wasn't born until centuries after um, Israel was saved out of Egypt. And yet Jude says Jesus saved Israel out of Egypt. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Judas is saying, my earthly half-brother, going by the name of Jesus, he was there. He is God the Son. He saved Israel out of Egypt. He was involved in that. Jesus himself even said, before Abraham was, I am. That, that's a claim to pre-existence. He is the eternal God. So right away, this means that in the person of Jesus, we are not dealing with someone who is merely a great moral teacher or even somebody who's just an inspiring person or even a, a galvanizing figure, um, historically very important, like Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who appears on the covers of magazines every year because of their contribution to humanity. A lot of people think about Jesus that way. I've seen Jesus on a special edition of National Geographic magazine at Natural Grocers. I mean, he's historic, historically famous, but Jesus is not like anyone else who has ever lived. Jesus is forever. He pre-existed the universe. It was made through him. He is almighty God. God's mighty self-expression. So why does it matter that we know that? Why does it matter that Jesus is God? Well, we're answering the question, what sort of person is capable of undoing all that's broken with us and with the world? Who, who has the power, who has the authority to undo all the evil, to deliver us from evil? Well, only God has that kind of authority. Only God has that kind of power to, to, to mend the separation between man and God, to, to fix what's wrong in, in our human level, all the evil and strife that we have between one another, and to even fix the creation itself so that it no longer resists us and, and grows these thorns and thistles and makes life painful. Only God has the capacity to address all of that evil and all of its effects. And that power resides in Jesus Christ. That's one thing that we have to know. That's, that's why it matters. He can't be just a good teacher. That wouldn't be enough. He can't just be an inspiring leader. He can't be a person with billions of dollars and a grand plan 
like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk. He's got to be more than that because all these people are still just people. They're still just fallen. They're still sinners like we are. They're in the same mess that we are in. They cannot save us out of it. We need God to come and save us. And he does in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's confirmed in his life that he actually is God and not just a man. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus overcoming all sorts, all manner of evil in the world, the whole range. Um, I'll just, just mention a few. He, we see him in the Gospels healing diseases, blindness, leprosy, paralysis, a withered hand, many other things. We see him raising people from the dead. He's overcoming death. Um, a widow's only son, a 12-year-old girl, Lazarus of Bethany. These are people he raised from the dead. We see him casting out evil spirits. So he has power over the demonic world, even a legion of demons in one man. He was so wild. He was so demonized. Nobody could restrain him. And with a word, Jesus casts out thousands of demons. We see Jesus exercising power over creation itself. He, he can fix a broken world. He has authority over it. He calms the storm by his word. He walks on water. He curses a fig tree and it withers. He multiplies loaves and fish to feed a multitude. He, do, he, he has authority over all creation. And most importantly for all of us, we see Jesus healing the separation between God and man. He pronounces forgiveness for sin over the paralytic who was lowered through the ceiling and they saw his faith. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, the woman who came in, the disreputable woman who comes in and she's weeping and she's wiping his feet and she's showing her love for him. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. He can, only he can mend this, this rift between us and him. Jesus did all those things because he is fully God, and that's why he can fix what's wrong with the world, and nobody else can. Only Jesus can save body and soul, which is why John says, in him was life. Death is like the one big word we can use to describe what happened because of sin. Everything's wrecked and ends in death. And decay, but Jesus comes with life. He's the one that can undo all that's wrong. Here's a specific application of that truth. This Jesus, the, the one, the, the Jesus who is God, we need to know that He is that when you're afraid of what the future holds. You need to know He's God. Because what do we fear if not? evil winning the day in our lives in some way being overcome by evil like we fear the pandemic restrictions will never end or we fear that we might not be able to provide for ourselves or for others and we fear that we might lose our health we might fear persecution you you fill in the blank with the thing that you fear what we fear is that evil is going to win the day somehow but in Jesus, evil does not win the day. It will afflict us 
We will deal with the consequences also for our own sins, but those who put their trust in Jesus will not be ultimately destroyed by evil. I give them eternal life, he said, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 28. Jesus is the mighty victorious champion over a broken world, and that's who we've put our trust in if you've trusted Christ. He's saying, this is, a, this is a savior, and he will save me. He has the power because he's God. So that's the first part of his glory is that he's God. Here's a second word. Jesus is man. Jesus is man. That's also part of his glory. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God came into the world and dwelt among us in fully human, flesh and bone. <laughs> he is the life that John said, we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. First John 1 John 1.1. We call that the incarnation, God becoming man. He is fully God and also fully man. And in fact, he will remain man forever. After his resurrection, Jesus not only had a body, but it was an imperishable one, never to die again. We might think that was a temporary situation, you know, that Jesus, after he ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand, well, maybe he ditched the body. That was a temporary thing just to show that he actually did live. But no, that's not true. The angel said in Acts 1.18, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The same way. He, will, he went up with a body. He will come back with a body. Jesus will forever be human, even as he will continue to be fully God. That's a permanent part of how God reveals himself to us through a human person that we can look upon and touch with our hands as John did and won't that be amazing <laughs> that we can actually see and touch Jesus one day? I, I hope that you can ponder that and get some encouragement from that. You One day, believers will see the one who hung on the cross. And you'll be able to do like Thomas did and put your fingers in the nail prints. Because he will reign, remain forever, both God and man. <clears throat> and just like his deity is confirmed by his life, um, also his humanity is confirmed. So the gospel writers show us that he was the real deal. He was actually fully human like you and I are. Um, just some examples of that. He, he was miraculously conceived without a father. But he was in the womb of a woman. He grew uh, like all of us do in the womb. He was born. He had an umbilical cord that needed to be cut. He needed to have his first good cry to open up his lungs. He, he was fully human baby. As he grew, he was submissive to his earthly father and mother. He, he was raised in a family. 
He became the older brother to a house full of siblings. We know from Mark 6, 3, that he had at least four brothers. He had four brothers and at least two sisters. Um, we see that he grew in wisdom and in stature. That's what Luke 2, 52 says. From childhood to adulthood, he went through the same processes that we do. Um, he was a teenager once. <laughs> he learned a trade and he became a carpenter. I mean, he made stuff. He, he earned a living. Um, he had to eat and drink. He became hungry and thirsty. He went to wedding, weddings and dinner parties. He had to sleep. One time he was so tired that he slept in a boat while the storm was about to sink it. That's tired. He had human emotions. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And he was outraged at those who dishonored God in the temple and he drove them out with a whip. He also had human temptations, though not human sin. The devil tempted him in the desert to end his fast and to fall down and worship him. Peter sought to deter Jesus from going to the cross. He said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's rebuking him. But Jesus never gave in to temptation. The writer of Hebrews says he is the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never gave in to temptation. He did not sin. And then he also suffered both relational pain and physical pain. John says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So he comes as God in the flesh, Yahweh, the one that the Jews worship. And they said, you're not him. You know, they didn't recognize him at all. They rejected him. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was whipped. And then he was nailed to a cross. Physical suffering. Intense physical suffering. And then he gave up his spirit. And he died physically, as we all will. This is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. A man not received as God by those who should have recognized him. <clears throat> he was, as Isaiah says, despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, why does his humanity matter? Well, for many reasons, but let me just give you one here that I think is a great encouragement to believers day by day. The fact that God became man means you can be sure he really knows what it's like to be in your shoes. He knows firsthand what it's like to live in this broken world with all of its temptations, with all of its sorrows and suffering. Because he did it. He gets it. He gets you. Hebrews 4.15 says of Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God became flesh in order to experience 
the full range of temptations, weaknesses, and sufferings that plague all of us. He didn't stay far above the fray, as it were, untouchable, unknowable, distant. He came down to where we are, and he inserted himself into our troubles. He didn't commit any sin. Otherwise, he couldn't save us out of our troubles because then he would be in the same mess that we are. But, but rather, he, he came and he endured the troubles without the sin so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what tempts us. And that makes him a savior that we can relate to personally. One of the things we sometimes say to people who try to counsel us or comfort us, sometimes we say, you don't understand, right? That's a way of saying, you can't help me because you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know me. You have wrong assumptions about what I need right now. Well, you can never say that to Jesus. He knows you and he knows the trouble you're dealing, dealing with and to a far greater degree than you and I can ever imagine. His temptations were greater than yours and greater than mine. And I say that because he never gave in to them. If temptation is like a barbell that you're holding up over your head, he never put it down. Whereas we do, we let it go, we drop, we, we get tired of it, we give in. But he kept it up the whole time. That's harder. That's way harder. He kept it up his whole life and never gave in. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to sin. But he knows something far worse. He knows what it's like to be counted guilty of the sins of millions of people that he would save. And his sufferings were greater than ours. Not only because he was spit upon and whipped and nailed to a cross, but because he bore God's full wrath for our sins. We can't imagine what that is. We don't have a clue what happened in those hours when darkness covered the earth and Jesus hung on the cross before he said it is finished. We, we don't know what that suffering was. We only know he drank the cup of wrath in our place so that we'll never have to drink it. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He knows suffering. So when you're having a hard time, think about the humanity of Jesus. You can never say to him, you don't understand me. You can't help me. He understands. He sympathizes. And more than that, he saves. And so that's how I want to close with the last point is one, one way that we can talk about how he saves and why he has to be both God and man in order to save us. And that's what this last word about his glory, which is the word mediator. Jesus is our mediator. So let's talk about that. The word's not in the John text, but we find it in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Paul says, there is one God and one mediator 
between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, what is a mediator? Well, in broad terms, a mediator is someone who steps in to settle a dispute between two parties. There's an offense and it needs to be resolved somehow. And in order to resolve it, a good mediator needs to come in and, and uh, represent both parties. He has to be completely fair. He has, to, he has to find a resolution that is acceptable to both sides. And in that way, he can bring these two parties together again in friendship who are separated over some offense. Well, our sin is what separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. We were created in God's image and designed to reflect his glory and live according to his will, but each of us in his own way has not done that. We have not given God the honor he deserves. That's the offense that has now created this separation between us. And in truth, there doesn't need to be any mediation between us and God because he would be totally within his rights to just condemn us all to judgment because we deserve it. There, there doesn't have to be a reconciliation. He's not obligated to do it. He's the offended party, not us. However, we read something in John 1.14 about God that makes him want to have mediation. In John 1.14, it says, We have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God will never violate his own truth that our sin requires judgment. It has to happen. He is truth and he holds to the truth. And the truth is the wages of sin is death. And so he is going to uphold that because he is full of truth. However, God is also full of grace, grace and mercy. He wants to give us blessing instead of judgment. That's where his heart's at. But how can he do both? How can he both uphold the truth, the wages of sin is death, and yet at the same time be gracious to us and get us out from underneath those wages? Well, enter the one mediator. The one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus brings God and man to the table of mediation. He comes to the table, first of all, representing God, because he is God. So he can do that. He can speak for God in this. And on that side of the table, on that side of the separation, he is there to make sure that God's honor and God's justice are satisfied. There is to be no compromise on the requirements of the law, that the wages of sin is death. He's there to make sure that that sentence gets carried out. But he's also there representing God in his desire for mercy. 
God's desire to save. And so he also comes to the table representing man because he is man. And he is there to make sure that although God's judgment gets carried out, it gets carried out in such a way that sinful humans can be spared that judgment and receive his mercy. So he's there to seek a resolution that is acceptable to both sides. Now that sounds like an impossibility. How can man be judged and at the same time man be spared judgment? Well, there's only one way. It's if there is the one mediator between God and men who gives himself as a ransom for all. As a man, Jesus can die for man's sin. He can carry out the justice. He can receive God's justice in himself so that that's satisfied and God's side of the equation is, is settled. But he is also able to bear the death and bear the judgment for millions of people because he is also God. He can actually save millions because he's not only a man, he is God-man. And so his death, if you will, is, is worth all the sins in the universe. It, it can account for all of those. And that's why it matters that both Jesus, that Jesus is both God and man. Um, just, a, just a man only could not die for millions of sins, millions of people's sins. But God can. A God-man can. But he has to be a man or he, or he couldn't die for man's sins. So on the cross, God's justice was satisfied. And those who receive Jesus as Savior are forgiven, and both sides are content. Reconciliation has taken place, and the mediator has removed the separation between God and man. That's mercy. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why God became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me just end with this. It's a thing of wonder that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's something that theologians over the centuries have gone to great lengths to try to explain. In 451 AD, there was a council called at the city of Chalcedon. They formed a creed and they sought to word very carefully how Jesus could be have two natures at the same time. How could he have a human nature and a divine nature? Uh, the theological term being the hypostatic union. It's not easy to get our minds wrapped around that. And, and here's why, because the very idea is full of seemingly contradictory things. God is uncreated, but man is created. God is eternal. Man has a beginning. God is almighty. Man is weak. God exists beyond time and space. Man exists only within time and space. God is infinite and present everywhere. Man is confined to one location. God cannot be tempted by evil. Man is tempted by evil. God cannot die. Man dies. <laughs> so how can we have God and man together? It's the greatest theological puzzle that there is. And it would take many, many sermons to try and probe the depths of all of that. If you go to the editor's version of our statement of faith, 
Um, there's one that has longer footnotes that explain why we wrote what we wrote in there. And the, and the footnote under incarnation and two natures is longer than the whole section on the person of Jesus Christ. It, it's because it takes a lot of words to try and interact with all the ancient truths of the God-man and also interact with all the ancient and current untruths and falsehoods about G Jesus being God and man. It, it, it takes a lot of nuance to try and say it means this, but not that. Um, and so if you want to go, go to uh, Little Statement of Faith, you can find it on the web and read the editor's version. It's a whole, the footnote is a whole page long in very tiny print. So uh, some of you like to do that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but let me just say this. I think after saying all that, um, it's a mystery. And I think we should take the advice of one of the greatest theologians of the late 1800s. There was a guy named Herbert Bavink from the Netherlands. Um, he wrote a 3,004 volume work called the Reformed Dogmatics, um, just a towering work, a really great mind. And here's what he said about the hypostatic union. He said, this mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. That's a good word, gratefully acknowledged. Let's gratefully acknowledge that God in his mercy and without any obligation has condescended to become flesh and dwell among us and take the penalty for our sins on himself. And let's let our response be the one that John called for. Um, in John 1.12, he said, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or as 20.31 says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing, you may have life in his name. Let's believe. We have to take it on faith. Things that are so mysterious, but not ultimately self-contradictory. Let us believe in Jesus, the God-man, and become and grow in the knowledge of being a child of God, received, forgiven, accepted, and given life. And we'll do that as we behold his glory continually, as we keep on believing. Let's pray. I know, Lord, we only scratched the surface of who Jesus is so much, so much more. Help us to get our minds wrapped around it a little bit more and to get strength from that for our day. These aren't just theological thoughts for academics and scholars. This is what you want us to know. This is how we grow. This is how we're transformed. And so help us. Um, give us a... Give us a new and fresh sight of our Savior who so mercifully came and condescended to save us. We ask it in his name. Amen.